It says it's recording, everybody. So I think our very first Atomic Moms Zoom is actually working. Um, ah! Okay, everyone, it has been quite a few, several now months. Uh, Welcome to Atomic Moms, a modern parenting podcast about the joys and complexities of caring for our children and ourselves. I'm Ellie Noss, and since 2014, we have been celebrating and commiserating with world-class authors, best-selling, we have been, (laughs) y'all, it has been a minute, with world-class experts, best-selling authors, and parents around the world. Oh my gosh, my hair is washed. Uh, The kids are far away. Hopefully they won't interrupt this discussion. And if they do, we'll deal with it. I am so grateful to have my friend Candice on the podcast today. She is co-hosting this conversation. Um, And mostly I wanted to do my first Zoom call recording because usually listeners, I just... I do an audio-only Skype call. I'm hidden in my little podcast room in the dark, just buried in all my notes. And I just really wanted an excuse to see my friend's face. Hi, Candice. Welcome to Atomic Moms. Okay. I am so excited to be here. And I think what makes me the most excited is that my hair is combed and brushed and styled. There was a curling iron involved. There's oh. a makeup on my face, there's a shower, like kid is away, husband is cut away, like this is like my domain right now, my house is mine. Like, I, can I just take a moment to celebrate and revel in the beautiful isolation of just kind of having space and time to myself because this is something I'm unfamiliar with. <laughs> so, I, that is... That's the great irony of this isolation is that it is so claustrophobic. <laughs> we talk. It is so true. It is so true. I am happy to be here. I am so thrilled that you invited me to be on this podcast as a parent. I don't know if I'm an expert. I always say I'm not an expert in anything but my own experience. Like I am all oh. over and on top of that. So that is my expertise. Wow like my experience. So I hope that I can just share my experience and that some people can relate because I am all about honesty and truth with what I share. <laughs> like I don't share yeah. it. I just, I throw it out there it is what it is. <laughs> And we, I mean, I fell in love with you on the playground at our child, our children's kindergarten. And I'm wondering if you can share with our listeners a little bit about yourself and about your exciting upcoming project. Thank you. Yes, I am a, well, now we're first grade mom, but. Oh my God. We met when we were having the incoming kindergartners. I am what they call a, a mother of advanced eternal age. I came very late into motherhood. I was 48 when my son was born, and we adopted him through open adoption. We started the process of having my son when I was um, 38. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry, I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting my dates mixed up. This is what happens with age, by the way, because I, I, I get... In isolation. I thought... I- Oh, uh, my numbers are way off, but I've always been that way. 
Listen, okay. real fast, Candace. I my wedding album. I was so late on picking out the photos for our wedding album that I did it a year later because I knew I had one year with the photographer. Then I stupidly said the wedding date was the day I turned it in. So our wedding album is embossed with the wrong year. <laughs> I, I like that. Okay, we're going to start backwards. So I am proudly 49. I love it. I own it. I'm into it. I was 38 when we started trying to have our son. I was 42 when he was born. So yeah, that gets us up to, that gets us up to where we are now. Uh, because I dealt with infertility, and because we ended up adopting our son, I have become a fierce advocate for infertility, for infertility access, for adoption, for adoption access, for foster care. I am an advocate for children, for military families. And that all came from my struggle because I remember going through it thinking, this is total crap and no one else should have to deal with this. Like I didn't want anyone else to have my story. And that's when, really when I became an advocate for infertility and infertil infertility access. But I have been an advocate for many other things. I started getting into my work with nonprofits in 2000, which makes it 20 years. And I don't know how like that happened. I feel like after 1989, when I graduated high school, everything else was a blur. So, <laughs> so I've been working with nonprofits for over 20 years. I did a lot of fundraising and a lot of nonprofit events. So it came naturally when I started advocating for, uh, for infertility and adoption. And your upcoming book is Dream Redefined, The Struggle and Success of Infertility as a Woman of Color. And you're collecting stories from other women who have experienced this. And where can they submit? How can they get involved? It cannot be any easier for you. You can go to infertilitystory.com and there are several direct links where it says share your story. Click on that directly to my inbox. You can share your story if you have been dealing with infertility, with pregnancy loss, with birth trauma. Mm. Some people submit a sentence. Some people submit essays. I'm here for your experience. I'm here to listen. I'm here to validate. Mm. And I definitely want it to be included. I want it to be included. <sighs> So often, women of color are either not included or just simply erased from the narrative when we talk about infertility and when we talk about pregnancy loss and when we talk about birth trauma. These are things that affect all women. They're isolating for all women, but much more so when you do not see reflections of people that look like you going through these things. So please share your story. Please let me include it. Please let me have your voice included. We are at such a flashpoint moment right now. This could not be more timely. People are listening to voices. People are hearing the things that we are saying. And so this is definitely your moment to have your story heard. And all it will do is help other women and give strength to other women. Wow. Well, I've been thinking a lot over the past several months, you know, since I last saw you. Um, oh, I'm really going to miss that playground next to our kids' school. Oh, um, I, I've had a lot of time to think um, as a privileged white mother. Um, oh, that was interesting. I just did that like eye roll thing, right? Like, and it's weird. It's that was like me trying 
that was me owning it, but being ashamed of it versus just being like, this is my reality. I am a privileged white mother. And this is the season that the scaffolding collapsed. Um, We have an immunocompromised family. We couldn't rely on our schools for socialization or for childcare. We couldn't rely on other childcare or housekeeping. We uh, felt like, you know, I can't trust my government to keep me and my family safe. And so all of those things sound very familiar to women who are not privileged and white. Um, So while sheltering in place, I had a lot of time to think about how sheltered I truly am. Um, It's also made me think about how this pandemic has forced me into this like fierce mama bear role. Um, there is such a, a, like a a raging protector in me. Um, and it's so exhausting. And to then see what's happening in our country and has been happening in our country a long time, but to actually physically, to see it and to see the videos of, policemen murdering. Yeah. And and I'm wondering if you can talk with us a little bit about this because you have been that protector since the moment that your son Max was born. Since the moment we found out he was a boy. That was my my first thought was one of fear, like happy because finally we've wanted a child for so long. But when I got the ultrasound result that he was a boy, my first thought was, I'm going to have a black son. And everything that I know comes with that. That was in that first moment of me finding out that Max was indeed a boy. And I think to address some of the things that you were saying in terms of like not seeing and not realizing, it's not necessarily... It is a blind spot, but it's a blind spot because it's just never been part of your experience. Any interaction you've probably had with a police officer has been positive. And so when that's your reality and that's the reality of your family and all of your friends and all of the people you know, it can seem so outrageous to think that the police who are actually there to protect and serve people that look like you, to think that there's another reality to it. It's very easy to say that can't be true, that can't be that bad, because you have never seen it. And I'll relate it back to motherhood. I was completely unprepared for what lack of sleep was going to do to me physically and mentally. I had heard that it's hard. I had heard that you don't sleep. I heard that they feed every three hours. But I had (laughs) nothing to relate that to. And so I was wholly unprepared for the reality, even though I knew. Right. And I think it's, it's a lot like that. You've Definitely. always known, and we have had talks before, mm-hmm. and you are an ally, so you have known you have been sensitive, but you still didn't know what you didn't know, if that makes any sense. The funny thing was, I was like trying to track my thoughts before this conversation, and I was like, oh, I should make a list of all the readings I've done, like as though... It's ridiculous because like, I'm not going to get a PhD in this right now or ever, and there will be always more to learn. And it's, 
a lot of us, and I know a lot of my listeners, because a lot of us are perfectionist white women, we're never going to get an A in this. And we're going to mess up a lot. And we keep showing up anyway. And we cannot ask for the gold stars. I had a friend who told me, she's a fellow school mom with us, and she said, I'm so afraid my kid's going to be the one to say something stupid. And that's not who we are. That's not what we say in my, our house. And I'm like, you know what? He could be. You, you don't know. But if he does, you own it. Make sure he owns it. You apologize for it. And you move on. Because the moment you are defensive about it is the moment that injury endures. Hmm. People make mistakes. My husband is white. We have had discussions. He has said things. You know, this is a man who loves me, that we have been married for over a decade. We share a child and he will still step in it sometimes. So people that you love and cherish can still step in it, but you have to own it. You have to not defend it and you have to want to do better. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that you have listeners that want to do all of those things. They want to do better. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, it's not easy to be the perfect mom. I try every day and I fail miserably. At, I mean, distance learning has taught me <laughs> that I fail miserably almost every day <laughs> in being the perfect mom. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. Never have I seen my shortcomings so glaringly obvious in my face than trying to teach my son, trying to, like, keep my family intact, have my yeah. husband in the house all the time, like – you have to let go of that perfection. And when you have held onto it your whole life, that's a hard thing to let go of. I'd love to ask you about that for a second, like the perfection that you've needed or felt you needed to hold on to and how race plays into that. That definitely is so hard. It's so ingrained in, in me because I have grown up in very white spaces my entire life where we lived, where I went to an all girls school in San Francisco. I was in a school of maybe 250 girls. I was one of seven black students. I went to very predominantly white university, uh, UC Santa Barbara and the University of Redlands. So I have been in very white spaces my entire life. And to navigate that, you do learn early on to code switch. And code switching, for people that don't know listening, is you change yourself, basically, depending on the company that you're with. Because there is a specific way, if you are going to be a person of color and the only person of color in situations, you, have, you are that model minority. And you are very aware that how you act is representative of everybody else that looks like you. It's not just you. And you are on guard all the time because you don't know if you are in safe situations. And think about that, to spend your life walking into a party or a club or a group of friends or in my sorority house, not knowing is someone going to say something racially insensitive? Is someone going to tell a racial joke? Is someone going to say something that really upsets me? And how do I respond to that? Because if I respond honestly, that plays into the, well, she's angry and she's bitter. If I laugh it off, what does that do to my soul? If I let it go, if I address it, like that's all of that comes into play in every single situation if you are the sole person of color. 
and it's tiring and it is exhausting, but it is honestly a lifetime of doing it and learning how to do it like early on, you know, and that's, I did not, as a black woman, I did not come into feeling that pride and that love of myself until I was in my twenties. I spent a lot of time hating my hair, hating the way my body looked, you know, hating some of my features because I didn't see anyone else that looked like me. And it is amazing like little things just get me. Uh, I saw like the princess and the frog when that came out in Disney, like to see a black mm-hmm. Disney is huge. Mm-hmm. It's huge. Like I, I, I love that when I see families that look like my family, I didn't see interracial families growing up. Now I see them in, in ads. That's validating. It's very validating to see people that look like you represented positively back. And I think it's equally important for people that are white to see that too. Like to see Black Panther come out and how much my son loved that, but to see like everyone in his class loved that too. It's important for a little white kid to see a black superhero just as much as it's important for my son to see the black superhero. Mm-hmm. What else, when, when you, to go back for a moment to when you realized that Max was a boy and that, that he would have and all that comes with that to be a black man in America. When did you start having conversations with him and how, when it comes to code switching, like, do you, cause I, so like as a white mother, I, and again, as you said, everything derails with zoom calls, <laughs> distance <laughs> learning and our class saw a whole other side of my family. I mean, Eliza, my two-year-old is like running butt naked through the background. Like I, <laughs> they saw every nook and cranny. It was like my child would try to angle the, the computer. So you would just see the mess everywhere. Um, and so as a white woman, I, and as a, you know, coming, I have like so much uptight repressed DNA in me and I, uh, it, it there is a moment of like, oh, well, I need you to be, act like this, especially if you're around my own mother, <laughs> like you, we got to switch in that way. Like we need to be, um, less like wild animals that we are. And, and I under, totally understand that that's completely different than what you're talking about where it comes to um, changing one's behavior for, for safety and acceptance. But how do you, like with Max, how do you address that? Like be, the way that you are in public or does he see it modeled in you or, or is there a feeling of wanting to rebel against that? of being like, no, my kid gets to be who he is always. He gets to show up in his blackness and everyone else can like, hello, accept it. We've, we've treated the race in the way that we've treated the adoption. We have always read, I mean, from the time Max was an infant in our arms and sucking on the bottle, we like books about race and books about adoption were read to him. And that's so when he started to become like cognitive it would have always been part of this conversation. So we had books about adoption. We had books about race. We had books about having a mom and dad that are different colors. We had books about people who had two mommies or people who have two daddies. And we did this. So it was always 
going to be a part of Max's memory. So there's not a date that I'm like, this is when we started talking about race. We've always talked about race. We've always had like racial heroes for Max. Like, you know, Max, we've been reading a book about Jackie Robinson since Max was mm-hmm. maybe like six months old. So he's always been aware of his race. He's always been aware that mommy and daddy are two different colors. When he was four, which is actually the age that kids start understanding, kids perceive race early on, Mm -hmm. even as infants, Mm -hmm. but age four seems to be the age that they start understanding that it is better to be white. And that, that is something that has been studied because kids, it's just no matter what you're teaching in your home, the information that they get from everything that surrounds them mm-hmm. is that normal is white and everything else surrounds that normalcy. And so Max actually said at four, I think it would be better if I had skin more like Papa. Like he had just known that somehow that was going to be better or easier for him. And it turned out that someone at his preschool had mentioned that he thought Max was dirty because he had darker skin. And that's a kid who probably hadn't talked with his parents about race. But the way that manifests is pain for my son. And I think that's that's the thing that a lot of white parents have not understood, that not talking about race is not teaching your kids to be colorblind because your kids are still getting informed Mm -hmm. about race but the information is not coming from you and your narrative and your family. And so that intent of the little boy was not to be hurtful, but that impact was very hurtful. And that caused a huge discussion in my home. We can you, do you mind sharing a little bit about what, what you said to him and how you handled it with other family in the school? Yeah. And I, I, I feel like, and I think that, you know, there's not like a monolithic way that, that black parents choose to talk to their kids about race. I think it's different for every family. I know families that discuss it you know, very, very positively. We discuss it very realistically because as I look at it as having a black son, I don't have the privilege of keeping him innocent. Mm-hmm. No. And it's a painful conversation and it's, hard conversation because my husband is not only white, my husband is from Europe originally and did not grow up with a lot of the history of the racial animosity in the United States. So in some ways I call him blissfully ignorant. He's so open-minded and he's so open, but it's because he didn't have a lot of that baggage that a lot of other people have. Mm -hmm. So it's me having the discussion. Yeah. And it sometimes makes me want to vomit in my mouth with the things that I have to say, because I have to say things like, you know, Max, everyone is equal, but everyone's not treated equally. And because you have darker skin, there are some people that will not treat you equally. And that's a hard concept for a child to grasp, but it's one who has to learn. Because Especially I, when all we say is treat people fairly, right? I mean, that's all, that's the lesson, that, that is the point of school at this age is to teach that. Yeah. And then to say, no matter what, that won't, yeah. ugh, that you can't make that happen. What, um, what was his response? He was sad. And then he was, he was mad. And, you know, their kids are young and you have to keep things very simple 
for kids, but he wasn't happy. Like he totally yeah. understood. But what, what I find now is because he has been so positively reinforced and we're lucky because our kids attend a school where there's a lot of discussion about race. So kids are comfortable talking about race and there's a lot of positive input into those discussions that he is very proudly owning that he's brown. Mm. And I have loved when I saw him do his self-portrait, he made it like darker than he really was. And for me, I'm like, he's owning that. Like he's so, he's proud of that, you know, because before self-portrait, he was much lighter than what he really was. And he was like three shades darker, you know, he had that brown crayon and he was, and I'm like, he is owning that. Like that brownness is now something he loves. Well, then I have two thoughts about that. One is Sabrina doing her self-portrait as well. She got, she was so adamant that had to be the proper skin tone. So that's so cool to see the intention behind that activity come out. Because again, white privilege mom, I'm like, okay, she's being like really prickly about how she has like, she has to mix her skin color perfectly. Not at all taking in the actual um, power and lesson of what that activity is. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. My other question is you said, so like when I said that you are going to have a black son, should have I said brown son? No, I. Okay. Yeah. I mean, black is a descriptive. That's, that's, that's the nomenclature. That's, that is a descriptor. And I think, to that point, what's interesting is there was another mom who has a, a son of color at our school, and one of the kids was describing her son and said, oh, uh, gave some other descriptors, and then mm-hmm. said, oh, he's black. And the mom went, I don't, should I be okay with that? And I'm like, yeah, because they're having those conversations. So we never had those conversations, mm-hmm. but using black, as a, using a racial descriptor, that's not bad, but we grew up with black you know I am I'm black that's that's one of the ways to describe me I'm black I have brown hair I've got brown eyes like that that's a way to describe me it's not and but we grew up thinking that you can't like you say white but you can't anyone else's race because somehow that was right and I'm like yeah using your son black is not weird for them because they were having racial conversations about being comfortable talking about people's races Okay. Well, Candice, we are now going to have Sophie join us. So listeners, Sophie is, um, I'm admitting her in from the waiting room. I'm so excited. Uh, again, total zoom newbie. Like my six year old was trying to like teach me how to do this. Um, that's a zoom wave. Hi, Sophie. <laughs> How are you, Sophie? Ooh, your flowers are so beautiful. Oh, thank you. They're from my mother's garden. What? Fantastic. What? I know. Ridiculous. Okay, Sophie, Candace, Candace, Sophie. Hi. Um, <laughs> so listeners, Sophie is a longtime listener. She reached out to me. It was so great. Why don't you tell our listeners who you are, why you reached out to me, and a little bit about your world right now, other than picking out the most beautiful flowers on the planet from your <laughs> garden. 
Sure, of course. Hi. Um, so my name is Sophie Salvatore. I'm thrilled to be here. I have been a long, long time listener and fan of Atomic Moms. Um, I had my daughter in 2014 and I was telling Ellie that my first day back at work, I listened to Atomic Moms on my commute to work and sobbed the entire time, <laughs> but was also so grateful. And um, I would say, so a little bit about me and my family. Uh, we're a biracial family. Um, my husband, Tom, and I have been married for 10 years in September. And um, we met in high school. We were friends and then reconnected after college. I know it's kind That's of so insane. <laughs> And so, um, but we have a five-year-old Amelia who's named after her great-grandmother and then Theo who's two and he still doesn't sleep through the night, but we love him anyway. Um, and my husband's a music teacher and I work for a nonprofit doing benefits benchmarking for tech companies. So we do um, global benefits work and I work kind of in the innovation space and um, I'm a champion of uh, time off programs and parental leave programs. So um, yeah, that's a little bit about me. And then, um, oh, go ahead. No, you go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on a roll. I'm on a roll. No, so I was so excited to connect with you both because I reached out to Ellie because I was like, wait, I listen to this podcast all the time. I love the podcast, but I've never really engaged in this way. And um, that's one of the things that I'm working on, especially in this in this movement, right, of just putting out more um, stories around humanity and different types of families. So it's my pleasure to be here. Well, thank you so much. Quick question about parental leave. Mm-hmm. How are you advising families right now? Because I know there's a lot of families that are not taking parental leave, some mm-hmm. because they don't realize that the government is is pays for it. I don't know. I was trying to cram this in and the New York Times this morning had an article about it. <laughs> but But so many families don't have support right now with the pandemic. How are, how is that going? Are people taking parental leave? Are they scared to? What's give us the what's on the forefront there? I really hope they're taking parental leave. I mean, if it's offered through an employer, um, because right now a lot of employers, and again, they should look at their policies that, um, their companies have, but a lot of them not only have parental leave right now, but they have something called a pandemic leave, right? And so there are different needs for caregivers, whether they're preparing to have a child or caregiving for someone who is a high risk, um, I guess, person if they were to have COVID. Um, And so I think it's a combination of looking at the benefits that you have through your employer, as well as what your state is offering. Because like you mentioned, Ellie, a lot of them are topping up the benefits, whether it's time off or pay or job protection. Candice, would you like to ask any questions? I mean, I've got thousands, but my white ass is trying to be less of the center of the conversation. <laughs> First of all, I think Sophie and I are, are living parallel lives. So I'm originally from San Francisco. I oh, you up, are? I've been down in LA for like 15 years. But I still have my 415 number. Like I'm still city or die. Fantastic. <laughs> my husband is Italian as well. So. Oh, Yeah. Oh yeah, I feel like we are living parallel lives. I was. I'm matchmaking. This is what I. <laughs> thank you, thank you. The three Before of us. Joined, we were talking about, um, like, I know you you have a son as well, and we were talking about like raising sons of color, you know, in general, and also like when we started 
having racial discussions. And mm-hmm. I had said that they were just always part of our family discussions. We would read books. We read books about, you know, having parents of two different races. Like we've always read books. So there was never a time when there wasn't a discussion about race. But I also said that there's not a monolithic black parent talk. Everyone has discussions and talks at their own pace. So when did you have a talk? When did you start discussions? Yes, I, I'm so glad you shared that because there's no manual. Like, I wish that there was one because I would totally read it. But um, so for us, we, we've centered the conversations, like starting with kindness because it felt like a great entry point, right? Because from there, you can really talk about everything. So we always talk about kindness. And from there, I would say we, it kind of naturally evolved because our family looks so different that our children ask questions and we talk about it openly. So sometimes things happen in our life where I have said to my husband, hey, that person never smiles at me, but I saw you walk in the room and they lit up, right? Mm -hmm. And so we don't hide those conversations behind closed doors. We have modeled that our children should be a part of that dialogue and they can be in the presence of it, right? Um, And then also, I think specifically when our daughter went to preschool, we really started having conversations because she was having conversations at school and also letting her developing some language at home. So, oh, tell me about your friend so-and-so. What do they like? Like, what do you know about them? What have you asked about them? So, you know, what, what's their family like? And so building off of some of those, that just that kindness, getting to know people, allowing them to tell their own story. And then from there specifically, unfortunately, we had some traumatizing things happened at school, which kind of pushed it further to read more books and um, things like that. So yeah, that's how, that's how we started it. Yeah, interesting. We had a a preschool situation, too. So I was telling Ellie that, you know, at four, that seems to be the age that kids start having these times. So I think that's a great point to make. Like, you're wondering, like, how early? That's how early. Mm -hmm. Our kids are impacted racially by common preschool. Right, right. So my question, um, I guess, Sophie, if you could answer first, and then Candace, do you, with, when a child says something ignorant on the playground that is harmful to your child, you address it with your own child, but how do you address it to the other parents? And then I'd love to also know what could a white parent say or do to help make amends there? Sure. So in our situation, um, someone said something to my daughter at school and um, it was way more traumatizing for me, which I wasn't Mm. prepared for. She was totally fine. And I was the one crying in my bedroom, right? (laughs) So yeah. Part, part of it is recognizing that, that like I'm bringing a whole bunch of life experiences and my child is not. And that is wonderful and beautiful and it's okay. And the other piece of it for me was um, the implication of what it meant at home, because suddenly it was a negative, what she experienced was a negative comment towards black and brown people. And so what was, what was simple for her, she started using that language in our family, which was again, harmful for me as the black parent, 
because mm. my husband is right, right? So one was just like addressing it openly, openly crying, if that's what I felt, like allowing myself to feel it. So then my child could see the impact because my worst fear was that she would be the one to say it because it could have easily have been my child, right? Just because she's brown doesn't mean that she, she wouldn't. Um, and so that those, I think, were like the, the guiding principles of like, understand that I have my own baggage and understand that it's okay to really be seen and to be hurt. And then um, the next thing I did, because it happened to be a family, it was like the one family we knew really well. I just called up the mom and I said, hey, the kids had this conversation. I think it's wonderful. How can we support it? And then how can we approach the school together to make this a safe conversation, to, to make sure that they have tools and to make sure that it's a dialogue. So that's, that's been our approach and it's worked sometimes and sometimes not. And, but you know, it's, it's and, when it, and when you, when it doesn't work, do you move forward to the next step? Because I know we, Candace and I were talking about like just the mama bear in us. And I have a feeling Sophie, just based on, you know, what you've sent me in emails and like your amazing PDF that you don't just like sh- sh- shrug things off. I mean, like you, you, uh, you move forward and you, you make change. So what, when it gets tough, mm-hmm. um, I mean, it's always tough, but when there is friction there, like what, how do you move forward or how, how do you advocate for your child? Like if the, if the white parent just doesn't get it. Right. I think it's, um, you, you do kind of move on because one thing I realized is that moment for some families is just one moment. And I understand the journey a little bit that they have in front of them that they may not be able to see. So I know Mm. that they will, they will face this again, just like I will, but in a different way. And I'm in it for the long haul. I've got this beautiful brown skin. My children do too. Like we are going to have to show up in different ways and we can't afford to be burnt out. We can't afford to give up and give up like wonderful conversations like this, right? So it's just learning to pace yourself and to just hold on to hope wherever you can find it. You know, I have, uh, when that situation happened, I addressed it with the school yeah. because I, I felt that me addressing it with that family, just with my interaction with that, that mom, I knew her reaction was going to be defensive. Mm-hmm. She was going to go out of the way to prove how racist she wasn't instead of listening, once again, to the impact of what happened. It wasn't the intent of the child to hurt, but the impact was very hurtful to my child. So I addressed it with the school director and I mentioned what happened. And I said, I think this would actually be a good time to speak to the whole class or read a book or have some kind of dialogue or maybe send a letter to the parent community saying, you know, we had an incident. These are some things to talk about. We don't allow this kind of language in the school. And that that's how I addressed it because Knowing me with the mama bear I have inside me, if I approach you and say, this is what happened, and you are defensive, it, it was not going to end well. <laughs> the mm-hmm. mama bear going at it because she wants to protect her child too. Because right. these are children. So there's not malicious intent with children at this point. It, it's like calling someone viper head, which Max did at school one day. You know, because <laughs> that's his whole name. They're not 
knowledgeable about the hurt that other things can do when you start talking about skin color. So we, go ahead. Oh, we, we did a similar thing and spoke with the director of the school and they refused to engage. Oh, like I went in person and it was a person of color and I spoke with them and they said, well, what do you expect me to do? And I said, I expect you to model how to have these conversations. I expect you to show up. I expect you to, you know, provide them with support. And there was nothing. That's sad and shocking because that, that's, the, that's kind of where it should come from too at that age. Right. It's the standard for people to be able to adhere to, like a, a code of conduct. I'm, I'm really mm-hmm. sorry. Right. I know. It's, it, it was shocking and very painful, right? But then again, I, I had to refocus it of like, okay, that's painful for me because I understand. And I understand the consequence for my daughter. But these, there are other parents who do not, right? So it's kind of a, a balance. I also really love what you said about um, taking care of yourselves and and ha- the different ways you approach this change so that you don't burn out. And I'm curious, what are steps that both of you are taking to avoid burnout? Because my God, we all have burnout anyway, like with the pandemic. And then, I mean, how... I mean, every day you turn on the news and there's something else uh, to reckon with. And so how, how do you um, stay present for the long haul? I know you don't have a choice, but how do you do it without, cho- like, how do you keep that hope alive that you're talking about, Sophie? Like, and, and Candace, how do you keep showing up with so much contagious energy that, all of us that are around you feed off of. <laughs> Sophie, like, you go first. <laughs> I don't know. I, I did I did I make any sense? That's what I'm usually wondering at the end of my questions. <laughs> yeah, you did. I mean, I think it's for me. It's really been like allowing myself to grieve in a new way um, that I didn't feel before. Like. Yes, I've always been impacted by these conversations and people being murdered and all of that stuff, but I never really made space for my own grief and the and like loss and trauma or anything like that. So I've been working on a lot of that and just recognizing it and giving a voice to it. Um, so that's been really healing. And then I think also like friendships. <laughs> Um, you know, friends who have called and things like that. And even friends who haven't called, but um, yeah, I, yeah, I I don't know, especially with two kids and and children in general, it has been a challenge. I don't know, Candace, what, what has it been like for you? It, it's been a challenge. I, our, our school was amazing in that they had a Zoom phone call for the parents of color just to come together as community since we were not able to do that physically and just share and I broke down in that call and just started crying because I had a safe space to do so. And I had not had that space because what's most important for all of us is keeping your children safe and making sure they know they're safe and that they're loved. Mm-hmm. But I had not, like you said, I hadn't had the chance to grieve what I saw. Like I saw a man murdered on TV. What did that do to me deep down? Like, I cannot unsee that. I, I will never forget that. Like, that is traumatic. And I had to give myself space to grieve through that trauma. And 
I also had to give myself the permission to disengage when a lot of people were calling me. Mm-hmm. I felt like I had to answer every call and every text, and I wanted to lean in. But then my energies extended, making sure everyone else was okay. Mm-hmm. And so when I just gave myself time to, you know what, you just get like a heart emoji back, or you just get the thumbs up. And then when I felt ready after a week to engage, then I can return a phone call and have a conversation. But there was a period of just like me totally disengaging and you just got like the heart emoji back and you texted yeah. it and you just got the I'll call you later. Yeah. Right. It's, it's interesting. Cause I, I have a friend that was like, Oh, I feel like I'm Beyonce. Like it's really strange. Everyone's calling. <laughs> it's like, that's wonderful. Cause like, I only got like three calls. I don't know what's happening. <laughs> I told Ellie, I heard from every white mom, like, in class, like everyone was calling. I know. I want to ask it. So, like, yeah, white women, like, we are coming out of the woodwork. <laughs> we are, we are, I mean, man, you just, uh, yeah, give us the, I mean, we have, we're finally waking up and starting to show up. And I, and I pray and I will be a part of making sure that this is not just a singular moment in time. He called for his mom. And I feel <sighs> like that was the moment that like every mother universally, mm. like it, it was worldwide. Every yeah. mother identified with that. That became everyone's child. Yes. Because for me, I felt like every, every time a black person is murdered, I sit in my office upstairs because I work remotely even during non-COVID times and I cry. I cry. I have this deep, like I, I, I have had grief around it, but like the difference now is that when I, I couldn't even watch the video because I was already so emotional about it because I had forced myself to watch so many videos like it. And I read this part of an article that said he called out for his, for his mama and mama is what my kids call me. And it was this moment of realizing I would lay down my life for my children and I love my children. And sometimes they're very, you know, uh, like, I don't know, they, they just, they're kids. They do things right. It can, they kind of like can aggravate you. We've all been at home a long time now, especially in California, sheltering in place. But like, I had never had this clarity of like, I would give my life up for them. And I feel like that's one of the things for me personally that's changed. And then also seeing that it, it's like this movement is resonating with so many people in different ways. And just this acknowledgement, I think for the few calls I have gotten, the acknowledgement of like, you've told me about this, Sophie, right? Like you've talked about it. You've been open with me. I heard you, but I did not understand. And that has been for me a huge part of healing also of like, to be seen in that way um, has been very humbling for myself. I, I, I don't know how else to describe it. I have had a lot of uh, white mom friends ask about reaching out and what's appropriate, what's not, what's triggering, what's, what's asking for, some, for um, a Black mother to do more work for them. Like there's a lot of fear around the reach out. And I'm curious if you guys could give some pointers of like, ugh, like don't say this or, um, or this is nice to hear. Uh, there was a New York times article where, um, the author said, don't say that you don't need to get back to me because that's taking the power away from him. Like he can make the choice whether or not to get back to you, but he doesn't, 
need your permission not to get back to you. Um, and I'm, and I'm wondering about that as well, because I love to hear permission for everything, (laughs) but especially that I don't have to get back to someone and I'm totally going to steal in the future, that little heart emoji. Cause some, you know, with, um, there are many times when I go into my own little hole and, and if a friend checks in or something and it, it does, it can feel exhausting to respond. And it makes me like uh, when my husband was sick for a week and like in his room isolated because we didn't know if he had COVID or not and people would check in and it was like, I don't want to respond. Like I don't have the energy to pretend like it's okay, but I also don't have the energy for them to try to take care of me that I'm not okay because it's not their place. Point being texting sucks and I wish we were, (laughs) we didn't have it. What, what do you do and, or what should a parent, if someone loves you, how, what is the most effective way for each of you? Cause I know it's unique to every individual, but like, what is the most touching way to reach out? I have liked the text or the phone call saying, hi, you're on my mind. I'm just checking in. How are you? I have liked that much better than the phone calls of what do I, what do I read? What do I go to? What do I, you know, like something that if you can Google it, like, why are you asking me? I mean, I, I heard someone once say that, you know, people are very smart. Like if you found out that your child had an incurable disease on Monday, by Friday, you'd be able to write your doctoral thesis on everything about that disease. So you have the ability to do Mm -hmm. some research on your own without casting me with, make me the list of books to read, Candice, make me, tell me where to, you know, you have all of that. Mm -hmm. So I, I would prefer it if you're coming kind of prepared for the conversation rather than Candace give me all the tools that I need so I can learn how to be anti-racist. You, you can do that because you, you have proven time and time again, you can do that, you know? Mm-hmm. So I like the checkup calls. How are you? How are, how is Mac? How are you talking to Mac? You know, that, that's okay. Mm-hmm. But I, I have been a little bit rubbed the wrong way with the, what do I do from, from here kind of thing. <sighs> you know? Yeah. It reminds me a little bit also of, the mental load of like mothers and fathers, right? Because, you know, we've been, it's like, just figure it out. Like the resources are there. Like, do you do the work? Don't make me do the mental labor and the emotional work as well. How about you, Sophie? Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. It's like, don't just post, like read the thing you post. Like I, I've been- Yes. <laughs> where parents have been like, I don't know what to do, but I posted this stuff. I, I posted this list of books, but I haven't read <sighs> any of the books and I haven't read this. Oh my God. Yeah. So it's like, I I, I definitely agree. It's like the ones where people have honestly reached out to say, hello, how are you thinking of you or just checking in or wishing you well, or, you know, just say, just essentially like short and sweet. Um, And then also I think Hmm. the putting something out there on social media has made the difference. And I want to speak to that for a second because I know a lot of people feel that it's like performative and there's no point to it and all of that stuff. I notice. And I notice the people who haven't. And what the biggest difference that it makes for me is it makes me wonder, are you an ally? Are you safe? Right? Like you don't have to post some big phenomenal, you know, wonderful thing but just saying that you support anti-racism, right? I mean, that's, that is simple and transformative. 
it makes it lets me know who you, who you are. <laughs> yeah, I I have to just say that um, my son is an avid golfer. Has been playing golf since he was three. Uh, we recently fired his golf coach because of something she posted on social media that made me feel unsafe. She had posted like out of the blue. She posted like the background or arrest staff of George Floyd. Like, like everything he'd done like, wrong in his life. She had posted that on a business page for her business. Right. And I'm like, my son is not safe there, period. And that's, we're, we're done. We'll find a new golf coach. Oh, yeah. You know, so, so you're right, Sophie. Social media, like you say, like some people may think it's performative. Like Facebook, more than anything else, lets you know who your friends are. Like that yeah. is, Facebook mm-hmm. is like the, the racism app. If you want to know who's racist, <laughs> check Facebook. Yes. Oh my God! Yes. true. Okay, and Sophie, let's talk about the Facebook mom groups. Oh What's going God. on there? There's a lot going on. I want to hear both of y'all's input on that because my white ass again. Mm. <laughs> the Facebook groups are garbage fire. I mean, this is the other thing. Okay? Like, I need someone to make. Like, I have an idea for an excellent app slash mom forum because I'm leaning in. A lot of these like parenting groups, they're, they are all free, right? All of the moderators, like none of them have training. They're just parents like the three of us and they're not necessarily equipped to like handle all of the engagement. So I was in a Facebook group with like 60,000 other parents and the racism was out of control and mistakenly the moderators deleted my comment about it being a safe place and like leaving and needing to leave. And then like they, they, they did it by accident because they were so overwhelmed trying to keep up with everything. And the, the two moms that like manage the group and this um, website are very well known. They've monetized all of their work and yet they're not able to like invest in professional moderators. Right. I don't even know if a professional moderator exists, but someone needs to like take these conversations and then like triage them into therapy <laughs> for like, you know, or like some type of other moderation offline. But yes, they're, and, and I would say every, every group that I'm in has had this issue and it turns out I'm in a lot of them. I, I didn't know that. Um, but yeah, it's. I know, that was actually one of the reasons with Atomic Moms, I, with, we have a Facebook community and I rarely go on because I wanted it to be more about the parents being able to interact with each other, but it, I have not pushed it or really emphasized it because it always felt a little scary to me. One, because it's Facebook and I don't love saying that it's a private community because it's not actually private because of Facebook and I have a problem with that. Secondly, um, I am not equipped to moderate it if it were to get to that point. And I remember having uh, Hillary uh, Frank on the podcast. She is the creator of the Longest Shortest Time podcast. And they had a Facebook group that was massive. And that got taken down years ago because they could not handle the conversations and the hate that started spewing. (sighs) I'm in for your app, Sophie. I'm in. (laughs) I just need an engineer. <laughs> oh, just that. Well, hey, we can figure it out. Uh, Candace, what are your thoughts on the Facebook mom groups? How do you, like, oh, do you want to be a part of it so you know who to avoid? Like, what's... Yeah, I mean, I, I, I 
when this all hit, like I got out of the Facebook mom group because it's just so out of control, you know, and it was not moderated. It was not unchecked. And, and what's interesting to Sophie's point, when things do start getting racialized, it is very usually the women of color that have their remarks taken off or have their remarks censored. I have noticed that like universally in different groups that when women of color start responding to the racism, all of a sudden our comments start disappearing. So we do get effectively silenced. And it's because people are uncomfortable with kind of getting it thrown back into their face. No one wants to be called racist. Like even if you say like the most racist stuff ever, like Steve King, a vowed racist congressman did not like being called racist. Like they don't, people don't like it because it feels bad and it should. So when you start saying that you have seen a comment as racial, people get very upset and then we get silenced as women of color for calling it out. Right. So, I mean, I will say this, like there's some mom groups I'm in for the drama. Like I get my popcorn, I get my wine, I read the comments and I'm like, oh, I'm all, yes. <laughs> we had a watch party in one of the Facebook groups because we all started getting deleted. And so. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> She's like, okay, I see you. I, I appreciate you being honest, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, speaking of our white fragility, uh, Candace, I'm two things are coming up for me. We did a book club group, and you are one of the moderators. And I'm curious if you can tell us, uh, tell our white listeners why, if you have, well, see, but this is hard because I don't want to discourage uh, white friends from getting together to do read articles and to share with each other and to learn more because that's our work to do separately too. Cause like, it's not your job to show up and help guide us through that. But at the same time, when we did a book club for white fragility, we had two black mothers help the discussion, guide the discussion. And I'm curious, like why that choice was made instead of just letting the blind lead the blind <laughs> with that in that particular instance. And then, you know, I want to get into white girl tears. Yeah. <laughs> that particular choice was made. Um, and I, I was asked to moderate. I did not volunteer for that moderating job. I was asked to moderate, but the, the choice was made. So it kind of wouldn't be the blind leading the blind. I think it was the first discussion uh, after that book had been introduced to our school community. Have you read white fragility, Sophie? I have read part of it, huh? I was thinking the author was uh, Mrs. D'Angelo. Robin D'Angelo, yeah. Thank you, Robin D'Angelo. It's a very good book, and I think, Sophie, more for people who are white than for people of color, but nothing in there would surprise you. I think for other people, it was very eye-opening, but you'd be like, yeah, know this, know this, but it's it's a very good read. But it, it was because I think there was a sense of, like you said, blind leading the blind and wanting to make sure that the conversation was on track and productive. But now I think since we've had that book club, I think you could easily moderate that to a group of all white people in the room because I think there are some traps that you fall into. When I talk about like code switching as a woman of Mm -hmm. color, there's code switching that you do as a white person that maybe you're not aware of. There are conversations that you have with all white people Mm -hmm. that may be tempered if I'm in the room. You know, so I think there is a conversation to be had with all of the white parents after reading that book with no people of color in that room, you know, and I think that now that you know that there are some pitfalls you can fall into, mainly the defensive one, you're better able to moderate that. 
Mm-hmm. So speaking of the defensiveness, y'all, the white girl tears. So how do we use them? <laughs> I use them with the cop, you know, like talk, you know, um, I, when I got pulled over in high school, my, um, the police officer said, and this is so, yeah, totally could have, you know, would have been a different situation if it hadn't been like little blonde Ellie in her Volvo getting pulled over say, and the cop said, I'm not, I'm going to give you a warning. I'm not getting you a ticket, but if you start crying, I'm going to give you a ticket. But it was like the, and I don't like to do things wrong. So that's where the tears were starting, but it's very easy for us to make it all about us. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Candace, what's, what, when should white women have, uh, you know, we're always trying to tell each other to have permission to feel. And yet this is one circumstance where we need to check it. I, I think it's easy for anyone to make anything about them. That's a very comfortable place for anyone to be. How, you know, like you are the center of your world. Like everything around you, you it impacts you. You think about how it affects you. And, and then you present to the world your affect. Um, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll use this example. There was a discussion we were having about a school mascot because we were changing the mascot. Uh, so the, the mascot... Um, it was just something that it, it was outdated and we wanted a new mascot for our school mm-hmm. and we were having a discussion about it. And I shared the story of my son getting a t-shirt the first day of school with his mascot on it. And it really hurt me to see that on my son's t-shirt. And I was going on and on about the impact of that and how we got home and I threw the t-shirt away because I just did not want that imagery on my son. And then the woman next to me starts crying and she's like, I designed the t-shirt. I'm not racist. And immediately the energy went to soothing her, making sure everyone knew she wasn't racist and telling her what a good person she was. And all of a sudden my pain, my legitimate pain was not talked about. It was all, it was like 20 minutes of making sure we all knew that she wasn't racist. And to me, like, that was the power of her tears. It wasn't her moment. She did not have, like, she didn't say, I'm really sorry that that t-shirt affected you that way. That wasn't my intent. She said, I'm not racist. And then it was all about making sure we knew that she wasn't racist. And to me, that's a great example of her tears. Her tears took that moment, took that experience, and no one else really got to speak about their experience because we were soothing her. And that to me, like that, that's the, like her, her tears move the entire conversation. And mm-hmm. that's like just a great example of like the power of that. Right. And Whether she knew the power or not, you know, that, that's where it was. Right. And it doesn't always have to be tears either. Right. Like I, going back to social media, like LinkedIn, I've seen really famous, well-known um, authors and HR leaders promote resumes suddenly of white men who have left their jobs in support of the movement or different, you know, causes to stand with Black Lives Matter. And that's wonderful. But they've shifted the conversation because they have certain connections to how wonderful they are because they're standing with BLM, right? And not amplifying the message of anti-racism, of humanity, of engaging, of conversations. And so I think it's like anytime in a public setting where it's shifting the narrative from the topic to kind of like 
the journey of how you got there is, you know, starts to become a little problematic, but it's also hard because I I don't think that Candace and I are, are, or anyone is really saying like, we don't, we don't want to hear those stories. We do, but there are times where the focus needs to continue to be on (laughs) anti-racism. Thank you, Toby. Perfect. (laughs) Do you think, oh, so here's where I get a little like wonky in trying not to center myself right? Um, Not to interject myself in the conversation, but trying to use the platform for good. (sighs) Where is that line? Like, it's so interesting because we come from this time also where the past several years have been so, I want to roll my eyes at it, but I've definitely absorbed some of it. Like this whole influencer thing, right? And it's like the brand is a reflection of you and you should share your personal stories. And now it's like, okay, but we've also had a lot of that and there is a lot of that. So I would love to know from both of you, like, what would you like to see the podcast platform used for and other white women who have blogs or whatever, like, how does it become a more, you know, it needs to be more of a, for me, my gut instinct is like, it obviously needs to be more of a, like this conversation, like having two black moms on, like the topic shouldn't be race. It is a part of it, but it sucks that that's what this conversation, like one of the headlines will be, right? Because we're so much more than that. And it, it's, it shouldn't be about, well, let me get the guests on who are black to talk about race. And then I'm going to go back and interview this 65-year-old white woman about (laughs) attachment theory or whatever. Right. Um, But I'd love to hear from you guys about that. And then I want to censor myself, total neurotic, where I'm like, well, but is this asking them to do the work for me? (laughs) Thank you for asking. Thank you for asking. Because I mean, there's... so. I think also like we're going through the journey too, right? Because as a mom, I'm like, wow, look at all the ways I've been silenced. Like I don't speak up about stuff in my personal life at work. So I'm going through the same journey of like, well, I've got to put myself out there, right? If I want to see representation of different families and things like that. And so I think it's an ongoing conversation, but there should absolutely be no shame to be wherever it is that we all are but just an understanding that we can all engage together. So maybe an effort to, to have moms that are different or are diverse in different ways, have different abilities um, and to tell those stories and to learn from one another and engage. And the quote that um, really got me like uh, back on social media again, cause I was kind of like on a social media diet of like not wanting to engage was your brand doesn't have room for these conversations and this type of engagement, then maybe the brand isn't worth fighting for. Maybe there was no substance to it. And I was like, Oh wow. Like that's the same for my life. If I don't have room for these conversations, if I'm not willing to be a part of the conversation and own where I am, cause I'm not a social justice worker. I'm just a mom. Then, then I'm a part of the problem too. So I can't say anything better than what, what Sophie just said. That's so true. And I think just the fact that I am happy to be here. I'm happy to speak about race. I'm happy to speak about like parenting. I'm happy to speak about like the disaster that was my quarantine parenting. Like I'm happy to speak about yes. 
But I'm happy to have this platform to speak about race. And I am grateful that you've given me this platform to have this honest conversation with you. So I don't take it as performative that you're having the black mom on to talk about race. I'm thinking like, well, who better? I am going to have a different view on race than a 65-year-old white woman. You know, right. like it, yeah. makes, it makes sense to me that I'm engaging with you this way. Okay. You know, <laughs> because honestly, like as a mother of color, that, that's at the forefront like I yeah. am a black mom every day that has different stresses than being a white mom. It just does. So that's part yeah. of like, I, I call it like the black mom talk, but before you go into target, don't look at anything, don't touch anything, you know, don't like, <laughs> yep. <laughs> Wait, tell me why. Be tell me why. Um, I <laughs> it's a long story. It's taking anything. Yeah. yeah. You know, like, I don't know if you saw like maybe like a year ago, like some kid took something from the dollar store and the cops like rolled them down like that. When that happened, I'm like, you see Tomasa? Well, I pat Max down at the checkout. That's why. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. It, it also, it's so funny because this is talk about just, I mean, why not go there? I, I'm ashamed of it anyway. So why not say it out loud? I mean, this is part of my exercise is to share all my inner BS so that hopefully other white listeners are like, oh yeah. Like you said that about giving yourself a pep talk about Target. And I'm like, yeah, I give myself that pep talk too. Like don't touch it because I'll spend so much money when I'm going through the checkout line. It's like a totally different conversation. But I will say that I have thought many times uh, at the grocery store with my two-year-old, especially when she was, I mean, not that I've gone to a grocery store since March 13th, but if when I did, my two-year-old would be in this car, the seat and like immediately I would grab, a, like I was the obnoxious yeah. customer taking food, it. opening it up. I've done it at Target yeah. with like the squeeze pack, right? And like, I, and I have always known that at least... Every time I would be like, oh, well, it's because I'm white. This isn't going to be a problem. Like I'm not, it's not going to be addressed. But the idea that, oh, it's, um, yeah, that's, oh, I, it's so, oh man, just even that moment, like the, the idea that Target, which is like, seems like, so, you know, family friendly brand. Like Target is a safe space for me, like in all the ways it has all the things I need. And yet that that is. <laughs> right. No, it, it's a store. It's dangerous. It's a huge risk, right? Like, so it's a black mom, pack a snack. If my husband takes the kids, he can do that. Right. Unfortunately. I mean, fortunately and unfortunately, that right. is not right. a privilege I'm to enjoy. Yeah. I mean, Max is, is biracial. So I mean, if, if he's with me, it's obvious he's black. If he's with my husband, mm. he could just be tan. Like people don't necessarily know right off, you know, that he's black. <laughs> but there is, there is a difference when Tommaso takes him to a park and how he's interacting versus if I'm with him at the park, you know. And mm. one of the reasons that we chose private school in California was because my fear was kids of color are just disproportionately disciplined at a different rate. And I kept thinking, I have a high energy active son. I don't want him to get labeled in kindergarten and then somehow get suspended for behavior that would go unchecked if he were white. And so that's one of the reasons that we're like, we need to go to a private school just so we have that ability to like relax when he's in school. 
what are your thoughts on public school versus private school, Sophie, with your own family? Yeah, so I feel very um, conflicted about it because it's so expensive. I would love to send my kids to private school. I I have always gone to a private school. Growing up, I went to a French bilingual school. Um, And so we made the decision that we would move next door to my in-laws because not only to be close to them, um, but also that the neighborhood school is one of the best in our area. And um, so that's that's wonderful, but I would love, I mean, I agree with you that, that, um, when there's, when it's a private school environment, you, there's a sense of accountability. And as a parent, you can be very active without being labeled as like overactive and over-concerned, which in a public school, I think you can run the risk. Um, ours is really different and unique in that it's very diverse um, and the students and the families are, um, are very engaged. So we felt a lot more comfortable with it. And also it's the school that my husband went to and it's a school that my mother-in-law was a second grade teacher for 20 years. So our family is very known in the school. Um, so, so it's kind of a different um, mm-hmm. experience and I feel very fortunate for that. Well, we all share in common that we are... Uh, sheltering in place with, uh, I, well, a c- compromised fam- immunocompromised family member for myself. Um, you both have your, you, you have your mother-in-law, Sophie, and Candice, you have your mom at home. And so there's a, a need to protect, um, you know, the older members of our family. How are you guys going to get through summer? Oh my gosh. I don't know if you could tell my family just walked in. <laughs> so I don't even know. It's such a good question. Because, you know, sheltering in place was supposed to be like two weeks, maybe, right? And here we are like three months later. So um, I, I've just ordered a bunch of toys off of Amazon, <laughs> which I would normally never do. I, I will be honest here. Like the wheels have come off the bus. The screen time is out of control. Like I'm not even going to pretend like that, that it is not like iPad action for a lot of the day. And, you know, seriously, like I, it, it it's kind of like, it's, it's not what life would be like if I had my choice, but this is what life is. So yeah, I mean, there's a lot of TBS kids, but there's a lot of screen time. There's a lot of screen time. We upgraded to Disney Plus and we were, my daughter had never seen like a princess movie. I mean, she saw Moana and Frozen, so I guess technically she had, but like, I mean, now she knows Beauty and the Beast and Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty and it's, it's a little overwhelming. But how about you, Ellie? How are you? What, 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 <laughs> oh my God, you, you guys. To learn from? <laughs> okay, okay. What do I have? What do I have? First of all, the PBS app is just incredible. Any parent out there listening who doesn't have the PBS app yet, yet get it because even my two-year-old can manage it because it's got the icons and what the different shows are. And also I know that whatever those shows are that she'll like. One thing I have found, and so if you have a similar age gap between the kids, um, and this show was a PBS show, but it's not on their app and now it's on Amazon, (laughs) is Peep and Quack. That show cracks up both of my kids and it's so cute. I mean, obviously, whenever I put my kids in front of the TV, I don't actually watch it myself, so I couldn't really tell you what it's about, but they seem to be learning things and they can both agree on watching it. Um, Bathtub time, you know, bath time is taking a really long time these days. Uh, What else? Um, 
a lot of water play, um, a lot of messy paints, which I hate. Uh, and oh, I'll be like, my favorite thing to do with Sabrina is um, I'll be like, this is going to be our our cultural moment, uh, you know, like culture moment. Like uh, Sophie and I were both in theater. And so I'll be like, every day I'll be like, okay, well, we have to sit and we must watch World of Dance. <laughs> That's like my version of like giving my kids in our education is watching World of Dance and then having uh, Sabrina do, she always likes to choreograph things and usually she ends up looking like a stripper on this table and that's <laughs> terrible. And then I'm trying to think of like, we just, I, I put a piece of green tape on the clock in our kitchen for when the kids could watch things that weren't PBS and when I could start drinking. And so that every day I just like wait for the clock to hit that mark. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. I can't believe the, the amount of, it's been a whole, you, you work in systems, Sophie, and like you, you know how to, you were saying in a previous conversation that like, you know how to streamline things. And man, let me tell you, this has been a real awakening of how, um, how much I relied on, you know, other people and also our school and time alone to clean up. And the idea of doing all of these things at once is a lot. And I am the worst at, um, I, my husband and I are total slobs and, you know, it took some Zoom calls with the school for me to get shamed into, you know, seeing that background being like, I can't, this is literally our dirty underwear out there for our school to see. So we are all new. This was purchased after Zoom calls. This is all brand new. This is from like April, like all new. Yes. You did a great job. Right now, this corner is appropriate. Isn't that great? We all have our little corners. Except mine is, I have locked the kids out of, this is the playroom because it's the only place where I can get appropriate internet. So it's just like total BS. Like that vase right there will definitely be coming down. Otherwise, Eliza will shatter it by this afternoon. <laughs> it's all set dressing. You were just about survival. Like until you saw your house on Zoom, you did not know what it looked like. I was like, oh, this is sad. Wait. <laughs> Oh my God. Well, you guys, thank you so much for this conversation. Candace and Sophie, please tell our listeners how they can find you. Let's start off with you, Candace. Uh, you can find me on my website for my upcoming book, so it's infertilitystory.com. That has a direct link on there to my email. So if you want to reach out to me, uh, please go there. And Sophie? I'm uh, at meritliving.com and meritliving um, on IG. So you can find me there. Um, it's newer spaces for me because I'm working on just putting myself out there. So yeah. Uh, most importantly, what is the scent of your candle in the background? Your Cire Trudeau or whatever. <laughs> okay. I have an obsession with this candle. It smells so good. It's the um, ABD Mint El Kader. So it smells like this fragrant mint. It's, mm -hmm. it's my go-to. It's my go-to. It's the only thing my husband likes is candles. Like it's the only gift I've ever been able to give him. It's 
and and actually that he got that one years ago. Um, I love it. I mean, I'll go find it. I keep, try not to have him around. I mean, that's your secret safe spot. So you can, but well, and also uh, so fragrant, fragrant that you don't have to light it. Oh, brilliant. Mm-hmm. Okay. And All also, right. when go to sleep, then we have cocktails, and I can light a candle. So it's like go to bed. <laughs> go to bed, which is another conversation for another time that go to bed with two-year-olds. I need your help on that. Yes, Candice? My selfie light died halfway through, so I just had to apologize. (laughs) (laughs) No, your lighting still looks great. And, um, and I feel you there. I, I, my light, I have a second one just in case because I, yeah. I was afraid of that. We've been using my selfie light a lot. Oh, here's another tip. Uh, you know, for everyone out there who has selfie lights, I don't know. I guess a lot of people actually should invest in them. What? Let's say, where did you, where do you get them? I need one. Okay. Uh, on Amazon. So it'll probably take three years now to get it, but it, it's Target. what? Target. Oh, okay. Well, Target. Um, the So I have the big ring light and it has a... Um, a phone holder. So you could record into it if you wanted to. But what I do is I tilt it down on a table. So Sabrina, so I'll press record on my phone. So my phone is like hanging over the table with the ring around it. And then she can make uh, Play-Doh videos, like of how she makes, she like designs dresses and stuff out of Play-Doh. So that uses some time. Um, But yeah, I mean, now that everyone is figuring out Zoom, where we are living these weird remote work lives. Uh, I think it's time for everyone to invest in a an influencer ring light. That's the takeaway. It's totally <laughs> yes, yes. Like at, at work, we have weekly like a weekly conference call because um, we transitioned our in person conference to a web based series. And so I totally feel you like every week I'm regretting my decision about, you know, not having like an awesome ring light or <laughs> you have beautiful. I can tell that you've got gorgeous yeah, window. You guys have beautiful windows. I'm in a basement. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you work with what you got. Uh, thank you so much, ladies. I really, really yeah. appreciate it. I God. Um, let's continue this conversation. Definitely. And I just wanted to say, Ellie, thank you so much for having us both on. I know that in the podcast, you've spoken a lot about wanting the podcast to be a place that your girls can come back to and listen to things. And I felt that way too, as a mom. And I hope that this is one of those conversations, you know, our children are going to ask us, what did we do? What was this time like? And, um, I think this is, this is a wonderful thing to engage in and, and I hope that listeners out there will think about having these types of conversations in their lives too. <sighs> Thank you. Yes, this is the legacy that white people need to protect and move forward. Like the, this is the, le- we are rewriting our own legacies and um, we do not, you know, oof, it just makes, yeah. It's, when you said that, it's because I think about legacy a lot with the girls and with the podcast and, um a lot of my legacy as a white person has been coming up a lot and being questioned and challenged and, and seeing how those, um, it, it just, it, it feels more insane by the minute, but the, the idea that you can walk, uh, like the, in my hometown of Houston, the idea that you'd go to a park and you would see a, a memorial for a, a confederate 
Mm. And it's like, whoa, legacy matters. And so thank you for being a part of mine. Um, Listeners, you can find over 230 episodes on any podcast app. Um, Check out our website, atomicmoms.com. Uh, on social media, join our conversation on Instagram at Atomic Moms and on our Facebook page. And sometimes, sometimes, very rarely, but sometimes I'm on Twitter at Atomic Moms. Uh, Until next time, trust in your goodness, live out your greatness. Rock on, Atomic Moms. Okay, now the question is, how do I stop recording? Bye, listeners! (laughs) 